Today's scripture comes from Numbers, chapter 13, verse 26, through chapter 14, verse 10. The men went back to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back a report for them and the whole community, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to Moses, we went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing with milk and honey, and here is some of its fruit. However, the people living in the land are strong, and the cities are large and fortified. We also saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites are living in the land of the Negev. The Hethites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people in the presence of Moses and said, Let's go up now and take possession of the land, because we can certainly conquer it. But the men who had gone up with him responded, We can't attack the people because they are stronger than we are. So they gave a negative report to the Israelites about the land they had scouted. The land we passed through to explore is one that devours its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are men of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. To ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. Then the whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites complained about Moses and Aaron, and the whole community told them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? Our wives and children will become plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to one another, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who scouted out the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite community, the land we passed through and explored is an extremely good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and give it to us. Only don't rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land, for we will devour them. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. While the whole community threatened to stone them, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the Israelites at the tent of meeting. The word of the Lord. Next week, um, we will begin a new fall sermon series on the book of Genesis. It's coming back from sabbatical after three months, and I was thinking, really just this week, like, where should we go next? What should we look at? Um, And I've wanted to, since I began my ministry here about six years ago, I wanted to just start on page one of the Bible, and so that's what we'll do, but that's starting next week. We'll be looking at Genesis 1 through 11 as the prologue. It's the prologue of the Bible, uh, the prologue of our lives, and we don't really understand either of those without understanding those chapters. But that's for next week. And before I move in to this text, I realize I also uh, last week didn't thank all those who preached this summer while I was away. Pastor Paul Kim, I know he's not here, but thank you to Pastor Paul. 
Maybe he's watching on the live stream because he misses us. I don't know. Uh, and Darian Lockett and David Ta. Did I miss anyone? Yes, yes. And I don't know. Did somebody else preach while I was away? Isaac, of course. Where's Isaac? <laughs> Sorry, Isaac. I did know about that. Um, thank you. And Chris Song. <laughs> okay, thank, thank you. Forgive my memory. It was a little rusty. Uh, but I really do mean that. It's a sacred and important ministry. Thank you for serving our church in that way. Uh, for this morning, for my first sermon after my three-month sabbatical, I decided to look at a passage that for me was a meaningful one for me during my summer, during my sabbatical, from the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, which was our reading in our uh, church-wide Bible reading plan called CBR. If you follow it or if you don't know about it, we have that. June and July, for most of that time, we were reading the book of Numbers, and that is what I was reading and praying through and meditating on. Numbers is not anyone's favorite book of the Bible that I know. No one? Okay. Uh, first of all, it's very poorly branded. Its name is Numbers. That happened uh, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek, and they chose, they actually changed the name from the Hebrew name to the name Numbers. And in Latin, it's even worse. It's arithmetai. <laughs> Which, yeah, it sounds like arithmetic. And if you're browsing a bookshelf, like deciding what you want to read, what's going to help my life? You don't pick up the book that says arithmetic. Unless you are just totally a numbers person, which we love you. You're awesome. The original uh, Hebrew title is much more interesting and far more accurate to what the book is actually about. The original Hebrew title is In the Wilderness. Numbers is the story of the people of Israel journeying from Mount Sinai, where they had been brought by God after they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt, to Mount Sinai. And then Numbers says this is what happened afterward in their journey from Mount Sinai to the Promised Land. That sounds more interesting, right? A story of a difficult journey through hard terrain, through ups and downs and moments of desperation and, and confusion and discouragement. We say, that's a story that I might want to read about. That's a story that I might watch that TV series about that uh, situation. But it's not the story any of us want to live through, which is maybe another reason why it's not that popular. The wilderness is a major theme in the Bible. But it's not a theme that we want to be a part of our lives or our stories. But Numbers and many other places in the Bible tell us that it will be. Jesus refers to Numbers often. Paul in 1 Corinthians, you can look at that in chapter 10, especially Peter in 2 Peter. Really the whole book of Hebrews and many other places tell us by referencing Numbers that the journey into the wilderness will be a theme in all of our lives. And let me explain then what I mean by wilderness and what the Bible teaches about the wilderness. Growing up in Florida in the East Coast, when I heard the word wilderness, what comes to mind for me is a forest, is like a place that has lakes and that kind of thing. But when we're reading the word wilderness in the Bible, it's something very different. Let's show a picture of the biblical wilderness. That's not a forest. <laughs> No, the wilderness or the desert is what is pictured and it is where the Israelites were 
in this story that we just heard read? Who wants this picture to describe their lives? Nobody in the overflow room? Nobody. (laughs) That is a barren wasteland. There's no life. There's no resources. There's nothing that we can turn to that we often turn to to make it through our lives. That's the wilderness. The wilderness in the Bible is an in-between place. I think I have this on the slides, where God leads us on a journey from old to new, which is what he was doing in the book of Numbers for the people of Israel. The wilderness is not the final destination, but it is the path that God wants to take us where he can get us to where he wants us to be, or said another way, the path to becoming the kind of people that he wants to make us into. In the wilderness, we are stripped, we are deprived of all the resources we normally rely on to get by. They don't work there. The things we use to get what we want out of life. So by definition, the wilderness is the hard times in life. Times where we are left wondering, okay, what is God doing? This is not where I expected to be or in any way where I expected God would take me. Am I on the right path? Is this the right direction? How could it be? I'm at the end of myself. Is this how it should be? Have you felt those things? Are you there now? The people in the book of Numbers felt this a lot. And for me to speak personally just for a moment, the last sermon I preached here uh, before my sabbatical was actually also about the wilderness. Uh, Jesus' words in Mark 6. That was my text. Come away to a desolate place or the wilderness And rest a while. And that's very comforting. (laughs) That's very inviting and peaceful words. Come and rest. And what I learned uh, this summer, one of the main things I learned, is that the wilderness is a place of rest. And a place of wrestling. And both are good. And coming back, as I've been learning what's, what's been going on in the lives of our church family and in many of your lives, I realize that many of you are wrestling right now in a wilderness place. And so I thought this message would be helpful to you. And all of us in our lives at some point will travel through the wilderness. So three things we need to know for our wilderness seasons in this message that I'm entitling Through the Wilderness. First lesson, God leads us through the wilderness. The first thing the people of Israel were meant to learn here seems like an obvious lesson, but this story shows us they still had not yet learned it. They had not yet accepted this lesson. God leads us through the wilderness, not around it. To get the full impact of this story about the spies who went into the promised land and everything that happened here and the reaction and all this stuff that took place, we need to understand the context. Where were they? How did they get here? What's going on? Where is the story? In verse 13, 26, if you look at that, it it, sets the context. It tells us where this story takes place. In the wilderness, at Paran, at Kadesh. And that's where I got that image. I just typed into Google, wilderness Paran. And hopefully Google was accurate. Um, That's what it looked like. That's where they were. They had been delivered out of Egypt. They had been in this wilderness for a long time, about a year and a half or two years at this point. So just think about that, a year and a half, two years in that place. That's not easy. They had been delivered out of Egypt, and they were like, yes, a new life. 
redeemed and free. God has saved us. He's taking us away from our old life, slavery, darkness, oppression, and evil, and he is moving us into a whole new life, freedom and life and good things. And then they're all going, and this is where we live for two years? What is happening? (laughs) Many have observed that there was a much more direct, a much more easy and comfortable route the Israelites could have taken from Egypt into Canaan or the Promised Land. It was the coastal route. Let's look at that map. Okay, so there's Egypt, um, the end of that that little line there, that's where they were trying to get. And you can see, uh, well, there's a nice coastal route they could have taken to get there. Very direct route that would have taken them to the promised land. But then you see this is their kind of many versions of where exactly did God take them because some of the place names are hard to determine now in our modern day, but it's something like that instead. the lesson of the desert, that God was telling his people, yeah, we're not taking the easy route. We're not taking the most direct route, but we are taking the best route. Can you trust me? This makes no sense to us when we look at this map. If we're in charge of the directions, you know, type it into Google Maps, right? Egypt, from Egypt to Canaan. And you have, you know, how it does. Like, you can take this route or you can choose this route. You know, two years, which turns into 40 years, or a month-long journey along the coast where there is a breeze. It is not a barren desert land. It is much shorter and much more comfortable, and I think there are like shawarma stands on the side of the road, and we can take that. Okay, that sounds like a good one. Oh, what's this route? Oh, it's that route. Yeah, that route has many moments of anxiety. Moments of panic and fear. A lot of confusion. A lot of heat. And a lot of discomfort. We all know which route we would choose. But here we see God chose the other route. And God leads his people through the wilderness, not around. This is a pattern throughout scripture. Moses himself spent 40 years living in the wilderness of Midian. Elijah the great prophet had two seasons in the wilderness himself. John the Baptist begins the New Testament where? In the wilderness. And Jesus himself was led into the wilderness as the first thing he did before he began his ministry. This is the pattern. If we don't learn this, if we don't expect this to be a part of following Jesus, when we get to the wilderness, we will think we're in the wrong place. We are on the wrong route. How can this be the right route? And we won't learn And we won't receive what God has to give to us in the wilderness. Our hearts will be hardened by the wilderness instead of softened. Psalm 95, Hebrews 3 and 4 reference this time in the wilderness and say, it hardened their hearts, which we'll get to in a moment and how that happened in this story. But their hearts were meant to be softened. As I was studying this week, I found this quote from Pastor Tim Keller that captures this lesson of the wilderness so well. It might be small there on the screen, but it's in your bulletin in the front as well. He says, over and over again, God meets us in the wilderness. He meets us in the desert. When we think our life is on a detour, 
It's really spiritual Main Street. When we think everything is going wrong, it's going wrong because it forces us to think in ways we wouldn't have thought otherwise. It forces us to seek in ways we would not have sought otherwise. When things aren't going according to your plan, when you think you're on a back road, it's Main Street spiritually. When we come to the wilderness seasons, times when we are at the end of ourselves and we're confused and weak and anxious and fearful, maybe we, see just no, we don't see results in our life, we don't see the fruit that we think should be there in our lives, spiritually speaking, and we think, maybe I am being punished. Maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I took the wrong route. Maybe God is angry with me. Maybe God has abandoned me. We blame ourselves or we blame God. But Numbers shows us the wilderness was not a punishment. The wilderness was not an abandonment. It was the exact opposite. It was a gift. A place for the people to come to know God, to be made holy, and to embrace the purpose that God had for them. And God said, this is the way that you will learn those things. You will be changed in a way you wouldn't have if we took the coastal route. In Psalm 63, if you look at the beginning of your bulletin, hear this prayer. It's an incredible prayer that we began our service with on page 2. Psalm 63, the prayer of David, he says, Oh God, you are my God, I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I want to just gaze upon you in the place of worship to see your strength and glory. I will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. Just listen to those words. This is the words of somebody. These are the words of somebody who says, God, in you I found something I can find nowhere else. Whatever I have or don't have in this life, you are better. You alone satisfy. Do you know where David prayed this prayer? It's in your Bible. If you look at Psalm 63, it says, David, in the wilderness of Judah. First point of application I just want you to think about this morning is if you find yourself in a wilderness place, if and when you do, to ask yourself, how much of my energy and prayers and my focus is spent on how can I get out of this versus how can I get to God in this? This is the prayer that David prayed. How can I get to God? This generation never entered the promised land because they never really accepted that they were in the wilderness. They just wanted to get out. And on the whole, this generation in numbers never did. They never really got to God. God led them through the wilderness, not around it. He does that with us too. That's the first lesson of the wilderness. But why is number two? <laughs> this is my second lesson, second point. The second thing this generation was supposed to learn, these, these people in this story, um, but didn't, is this, if we say, okay, I get it, okay, expect a wilderness, it's part of how God changes us and forms us and brings us closer to himself that we would know him for who he is. I accept it, it's hard, but I see it's a pattern. God leads us through the wilderness, but to continue on and endure in those wilderness seasons, we need to know, we want to know, why? Why does it have to be through the wilderness? 
And while this story doesn't address and answer all those questions we might have about hardship and about suffering that comes into our lives, it does offer us very important perspective on the question, why? When we are in situations beyond our resources, in the moment, like what happened here, things take over, we don't see the situation clearly, and so we need to grab onto and remember why. It's so hard in the moment. This summer... um, One of the things our family was able to do, one of our getaways, was um, we got away to the wilderness of La Quinta, which is right by Palm Springs. You know, that is a wilderness, Uh, but it it doesn't feel like that because of all kinds of comforts that we've created there. So we were in the house uh, that we stayed in this house there, and the AC in this house was split into two sections, and one thermostat controlled two rooms and the other thermostat controlled, you know, another part of the house and one of the other rooms. And two of our very beloved and precious children were in uh, one room, and then the rest of us were in the other two rooms. And at night, what these children discovered in that one room was that that thermostat was programmed to turn off at about, I think it was like midnight or something like that. And it was set to 90 And so they're trying to sleep in this room, and they're starting to sweat, and they're trying to, like, what am I supposed to do? And you can't can't change the thermostat. It's programmed by the the folks who own it. And so the next morning, they are coming to us, Amelia and I, and saying, why did you bring us here? (laughs) (laughs) You brought us here to harm us, not for our good. And yeah, we, we made it through, but that was, that was a challenge. And that's how it feels to us in the wilderness. How can this be for my good? Right? That's what they said. You didn't bring us here for our good. You brought us here, God, to kill us in this wasteland of a wilderness. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, In Deuteronomy 1, Deuteronomy comes right after Numbers. God says, here is why. He's telling that generation a little bit later on, this is why I brought you through the wilderness. Remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey for these 40 years in the wilderness so that, why? He might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. Then he gave you manna to eat, which you and your ancestors had not known. So that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out. Your feet did not swell these 40 years. Keep in mind, the Lord your God has been disciplining you or training you or teaching you just as a man disciplines his son. And earlier on, God through Moses said this, you saw in the wilderness how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all along the way you traveled until you reached this place. But in spite of this, you did not trust the Lord your God. Why does God bring us through the wilderness? It is to reveal what is in our hearts, to reveal our faith, and to refine our faith. In other words, to show us whether or not the faith that we say we have The faith that we might think we have is, in fact, the faith 
that we really do have. And let's look at how this plays out in the story. You can follow along in the bulletin. This is a major turning point in the entire story of Israel. It's referred back to many times throughout the Bible. But now is the time for them to leave the wilderness and enter into the promised land. So verses 26 and 27, what does it say? It says, scouts were sent out. Let's go check it out. They come back with a report in verse 27. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. As a kid, I always thought, what is it? Are there like rivers of milk and like honey's flowing? They're like, okay, there's cows and there's like, it's a fruitful land where there's flowers. So it's a, it's a really good productive land is what he's saying. But they said, however, the people in the land are strong and their cities are fortified. Okay. And then in verse 30, Caleb speaks up. He's one of the spies that went in. He quieted the people. So if he had to quiet the people, the report, you know, is a little bit of a mixed report. The people must have been like talking or murmuring like, whoa, that milk and honey, that's good. But wait, did he say fortified and the people are strong? Okay. You know, I thought we were beyond those situations that are, you know, that are beyond our resources, but there's more challenge ahead. And so they start like talking and murmuring a little bit. And But Caleb says, despite these challenges, we can conquer it. Side note, real quick, I know many of you have questions about this part of the Bible, the conquering of the land and the conquest of Canaan and that sort of thing. We can't get into it in depth. Uh, the Bible says the injustice and the evil that was at, at work in the people of this land was being judged and God was bringing Israel into this land. Not just to bring the people of Israel there, but to bring blessing, to demonstrate his goodness and glory and his plan of redemption for all nations through the, the people of Israel. But we can't explore more questions on that now, but we can talk, yeah, you can talk with me later if you have more questions. But let's look at verse 31. The other spies, they don't share Caleb's outlook on the situation. He says, we can do it. They say, no, we can't. They're stronger than us. Verse 32 and it says they gave a negative report. And the word there, negative report, is not just, um, you know, they, they gave kind of another perspective on the situation. The word negative there means a misleading report. It's used for slander and deceit in other places in the Bible. Actually, what we meant to say is that the land devours the people who live there. Yeah, it's not really good. And oh yeah, did we mention they're giants? They're giants there. Yep, they're there. Uh, these giants, they're the descendants of the Nephilim. Another difficult passage, that's in Genesis chapter 6. Maybe we'll talk about that in the series coming up. But in Genesis 6, there was a race of strong warriors, and they were thought to be even uh, somehow kind of super enhanced warriors. And, and they're saying, these people come from them. In other words, there's no way we stand a chance against them. But the point of this passage is that they're distorting, they're deceiving, and they're exaggerating and embellishing. And then at the end, they say, to ourselves, we seem like grasshoppers, and we must have seemed the same to them. And the whole community starts weeping that night, and they said, God led us here to die. He lied to us. The land is not good. Let's go back to Egypt. And what they are saying here is a big deal. They are saying we are done with God. We are done with this journey. We are done with the whole thing, and we are going back to where we started before we had this, God, when they were leaving it all. 
Now what happened here? In the wilderness, their faith, the faith they had, maybe that they confessed or thought they had, was revealed. And what was shown was the faith, the faith that they really had. That's what happened here. And one of the commentaries, it, this made me kind of chuckle because it's very commentary-like what this commentary author said. But here, listen to this. He says, it should be noted that nowhere in chapter 13 does the name of God or his promise of the land figure as a prominent theme. That's a very scholarly observation and way of saying it. But in other words, what he's saying I think is very important. They had written God out of the story. They had written God out of this situation entirely. This back and forth dialogue in chapter 13. Can we do it? Should we do it? Yes, we can. No, we can't. That entire dialogue, this commentary was making the point it never once mentioned God. With God out of the picture, all they have left is to rely on themselves and their own resources, which seem, it seems so weak and puny like little grasshoppers. And here is the place for me when I was reading this passage uh, in July, I think it was, where God was working to reveal things about my own life and my own faith. And I think many of you, maybe all of you will be able to relate to this. And I realize how much in my life I have often a grasshopper mentality. Where there's something God has called us to do, me to do, to be. Something that, based on my best discernment, I think God has called me to step into this situation, move in, lean in, obey me, trust me, face it. And often I'm just like, I'm just a grasshopper. And fear and inadequacy drives God out of the picture, out of the story. Things get out of proportion. Things that I'm facing, it's like, well, I, this is too much. This is too big. And all that spins in this cycle of inner dialogue. Can we do it? Yeah. No, wait, can we? No, we can't. We can't. And you get stuck. You get immobilized. So many examples for me. Some of these might be for you. Sometimes we might feel like a grasshopper parent. Does anybody feel like that? Man, I want so much for my kids. Man, I want to do a better job as a dad. Man, but I feel like a grasshopper. I don't know if I can do that. A grasshopper husband. This is what I feel like God has called me to be and to do. But man, it seems so beyond me. A grasshopper Christian. What am I called to do and move into? This is an area of obedience and trusting God. I, that's too big for me. Maybe I should just go back to what's comfortable. I don't know. And often grasshopper in your vocation. For me, I'm a pastor, a grasshopper pastor. Coming back's been, been good and been challenging. It's been good to see all of you and realize, yeah, there's things, there's needs, there's challenges we, we are facing here as a community. We got to step into that. And there's a part of me that's like, but I'm just a grasshopper. What can I do about that? And here's what hit me. And here's what I want you to hear. This kind of self-doubt this grasshopper mentality, it looks very, very different than the mentality of pride and self-confidence and being a go-getter, but it is really just the flip side of self-confidence. 
Both are ways that we write God out of the story. Both are ways we look to our own resources. And both are rooted in unbelief. Self-doubt or self-confidence, which we often, I often find myself jumping back and forth between those two things. Those are just two different ways where our faith is in ourselves. And the wilderness is where this is revealed. Here they're in despair. And Moses and Aaron, what do they do? They just fall down on their face. What, is, what are they doing? <laughs> what, are, what is that all about? Well, I think maybe this was Moses and Aaron saying, we, have no, we don't know what to say. We're just going to fall down on our face as a reminder to this people. No, God is here. And all we can do is fall before him. God is with us. You're writing him out of the story. And then Joshua speaks up and says, don't rebel against the Lord. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't let your fear drive God out of the story. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us, but they don't want to hear it. And they threaten to stone all of them. And then the story here ends, at least where we ended it, the glory of the Lord appeared. Oh, he is with us. Why did God lead them through the wilderness? What was God doing in the wilderness? He was writing himself into their story time and time again. He had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt after they cried out to him. He said, I'm with you. I will take you out. He delivered them at the Red Sea. In front of them was the Red Sea. They couldn't get through. Behind them was Pharaoh. I am with you. I can make a way through. We will go into the wilderness. Where is the food? I am with you. I will provide you with daily manna. But where is the water? I am with you. I will give you water even from a rock. We want some meat. That's a whole story about the quail. Yeah, I know. I can provide meat as well. Time and time again, through the construction of the tabernacle, I will be with you here. You can meet me here. You can draw near to me here. You can have your sins forgiven and cleansed, and you can rejoice in my presence time and time again. God was teaching them in the wilderness. I am with you. And here's what hit home for me. At the same time I was reading Numbers, I was reading the Gospel of Matthew. And what Joshua says here is the key. This is what the whole Bible is about. This is the heart of the Gospel. God is writing himself into our story. Matthew chapter 1, the Son of God, the eternal God comes. He is born of a virgin. That's a pretty big deal. What is his name? Why is he doing this? Why is he coming into the human race? His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, after this same Son of God, Jesus Christ, after he walks among us, lives a faithful life, what are his final words after rising from the dead? The final words in the Gospel of Matthew. Surely I am with you until the end of the age. This is what the gospel is all about. That God would show us when we are in the wilderness throughout all of our lives, where are you? Are you here? What are you doing? Why are we doing this? What is happening? 
for us to hold on in faith to the words, I am with you. I have lived a human life in a broken world. Jesus himself went into the wilderness to be tempted himself. He came out faithful and he went into the darkest of all wildernesses where he cried out, why am I forsaken? Taking on our sin. Taking on darkness and evil. Why? So that on every moment in every wilderness, we would hear him resurrected from the dead say to us, surely I am with you until the end of the age. You can believe that. So why the wilderness? Here's something else I found that was very profoundly helpful to me. Uh, someone said about this story that here's, here's what's happening. To operate in brash self-confidence, to be full of pride, is to court disaster. But to remain in cowering self-doubt is also to distrust God. We live in self-confidence or self-doubt. The wilderness shows us there's another way. To change us into people who live with humble confidence. Or maybe to say it another way, broken boldness. They were humbled and broken. They feel like, I'm just a grasshopper. And maybe we know people are humble. Maybe we feel like, I'm naturally humble. I'm just a grasshopper. I don't know what to do. I'm meek and I'm modest and I'm not sure. And we might know some people who are confident and bold. I'm like, grasshopper? I'm not a grasshopper. You know, I'm whatever eats a grasshopper. I don't know what that is. Like, I'm going to be confident. I am independent. I got this. But rarely do we see somebody who is humble and confident, broken of their self-confidence, yet also at the same time bold. And that is what God is leading his people here. He is leading us into through the gospel. It's only possible in Christ that breaks us of our pride, our self-importance, our self-confidence, makes us aware of our great limitations and weakness. That's very humbling, but at the same time fills us with a boldness that we can face. Whatever is in front of us that God has placed before us. Do you want to be the kind of person who can take getting anything revealed about yourself? That is humbling. That's very hard. We don't, we don't want to see how weak we really are. The kind of person that can face your own sin, your weakness, your smallness, your powerlessness, your limits, and have that kind of humility, and yet be the same kind of person who can face any challenge and say, I can move in with boldness. I can move in with courage. Friends, that is possible because of Jesus Christ who said, I am with you. The things that drove Jesus to us, the things that drove Jesus to us, our limits, our weakness, our sin, are the things time and time again that drive us to him so we can hear him say again, I am with you. You are known, you are loved, you are secure, you are not alone. That is why God leads us to the wilderness, and I'm just going to say real quickly, final point, shortest point, God will lead us through the wilderness. The entire book of Numbers is about God's purpose and plan. He was never going to leave them in the wilderness. He was leading them through, and he did. Those who refused and wanted to go back, they were left to wander. Yes, for 38 more years, the next generation was brought into the promised land. And it's important we all hear this in this story as well, and that's what I want to make sure I clearly say and end with this. 
the wilderness is not the end, and you need to know that, especially if you're there now. There is a promised land. There is a promise of a new creation. There is an end to sighing and sorrow. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the guarantee of that. And even those things that in this life feel like a long wilderness that we wrestle with again and again, maybe our whole lives even, they are not the end. He will carry us through. Just as he told the people of Israel, did you not know? In the wilderness, I carried you as my son, as my daughter. He will carry us through to the end. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, would you help us now in this moment just sit before you? And if you want to show us something about our faith, to reveal something about our faith, the one that we maybe think we have and confess we have versus what we really have, do that in the hearts and lives of those of us gathered here. I pray especially for those who are in a wilderness season, who feel stuck because of fear of failure or, or having a hard time stepping out to trust that what you have before them is really good. Would you help them hear those words? I am with you. And hold on. Would you encourage them with the daily bread they need, the water in the wilderness? May they go to you, come to you, and find that you are indeed better than even life itself. Prepare us, I pray, by making us more humble, more broken, and also at the same time more confident and bold because of what you have done for us in Jesus. Lead us there, Lord. Again and again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.